If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Lord willing, we will look at the remaining verses of this chapter, his last three messages, at least, preaching team uh, with Zach a few weeks ago, starting out with the first two verses last week. Uh, Brother Tim led us through verses three through eight. And today we will begin our study of chapter 12, verse 9. As you're making your way there, either electronically or the old-fashioned way of turning pages, I want to, again, share my appreciation for a couple of things that Tim has provided for us today. First of all, uh, last week did a wonderful job in leading us through uh, Paul's mention of the spiritual gifts or the spiritual ministry of the church uh, as he related to uh, his analogy of, of, of jumping in, off your ship and going getting on the right one taking your flag down get putting up the right flag on your boat but something that we often take for granted as a congregation I'm, I'm going to just group this all together here i'm going to assume that you're just as forgetful as i am and when, we, when you open up your worship guide uh, and we have responsive readings, oftentimes, if not every time, uh, as Tim is helping put the worship guide together, he provides those for us. Uh, and particularly on days like today, uh, it is very helpful because in my mind, as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking, this sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. When you think about what Paul is addressing in verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12, and you'll, uh, hopefully you will see uh, the similarities. But as we were reading today, and of course, as I was looking at the worship guide as he sent it out this weekend, I was thinking, yeah, I meant to say something to Tim about maybe putting that in as a responsive reading because the Beatitudes, when Jesus is speaking to, his, to the congregation on the mount, in the gospel, the beginning of his ministry, and I believe that this was a message that he not only preached once on that sermon, but it was one that he would regularly go out and communicate. As he was giving the Beatitudes, as we often call them, because it is, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, and, and the list goes on. But the Sermon on the Mount goes way beyond the Beatitudes, which I guess if we were to use that in our responsive reading, we'd probably still be in, involved in our responsive reading right now, for it goes through three chapters of the book of Matthew. But there are many commentators who would suggest that the Sermon on the Mount is the gospel. Because as Pastor Charlie was talking about, it is the life that we seek as followers of Jesus Christ to be living. We are to pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an easy way of saying, Lord, help us live out what we heard on the Sermon on the Mount. Help us live a life that goes beyond the logistics of living out certain acts or thinking certain thoughts, but really gets to the heart of the matter. That's where Jesus said, now, you may not have committed murder, but if you hate your brother, or you may not have committed adultery physically with another person, but if you lusted in your heart, 
And he talks about those who would pray publicly so people would hear them or those who would give publicly so people could hear the, the clanking of the coins into the bottom of the offering pot. And the Sermon on the Mount was an opportunity that Jesus took to, to speak of the heart issue, the sinfulness of mankind that needs to be completely eradicated, not just reformed, not just modified, but mortified. That we need a new heart, that the new covenant promises us, a heart of flesh so that we can live in obedience to God, not because we figured it out, but God has graciously given us His Spirit. A Spirit of life to not only have our sins forgiven, but a Spirit of life that helps us live what He's called us to live. And so when we come to Romans chapter 12, and Paul makes a transition from his great doctrinal presentation of the first 11 chapters, which by any estimation of any scholar or any Christian theologian would agree that it is probably the most the most substantive presentation of doctrine, he transitions to practical. Now how do you make all of this theology live? And he begins in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 by telling us by the mercies of God you need to present your body to living sacrifice completely to God. The King James, it's your reasonable service, or as most translations, more modern translations, just simply that it's acceptable. It's your, it's your spiritual service, your spiritual worship. And the, and, and the key in verse two of don't be trans or be conformed to this world. <laughs> well, that's easy to figure out because guess what? We come into this world already conformed to this world. But as those who have been changed by the grace of God, as Paul has presented it in the first 11 chapters, no longer be conformed to this world. Rather, be transformed. Let there be a metamorphosis. Instead of remaining as a caterpillar, you need to turn into a butterfly. Or for some of us, a moth. Let's face it, some of us look more like a moth than we do a butterfly. But there should be a change. There should be a transformation. And how does that transformation come? By sitting on your couch and watching Christian television? Does it come about by reading a bunch of theological books? Or does it come through the renewing of your mind? Which hopefully, if you do watch Christian television, if you can find it, that it's based on the Word of God. If you're reading a book, that it's saturated with the Word of God so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Not to re-preach the first two verses, but I think it's interesting to note that it doesn't say by the renewing of your heart. Now again, we can get the emotions, we can get the mental capacities of the human being. Sometimes they intertwine through Scripture. But we understand that Jesus has already given us a new heart. That's what the new covenant promises us to those of us who are in Christ. However, in this world, we've got to change the way we think. We have to have a new foundation upon which we make decisions and how we make choices in life. So there must be a 
renewing of the mind. And that leads, and that will help us to discern what the will of God is, which is perfect, which is good and acceptable. And the grace, verse 3, that was given to me to say this, Paul is really talking about the grace that's been given to us. Grace for what? Having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And Tim did a wonderful job in, in presenting, number one, that this is not an exhaustive list of gifts. If it were, we're, doing, we're, we're painting way outside the lines. But this is just a, a, a small portion, as there are other sections in Scripture that Peter writes for us, as well as uh, Paul in the letter to First Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthian church, speaks about a, of, a, of other gifts. So it's not exhaustive, but what it is is opportunities for us to get involved. As Tim used the analogy of, on, a, on, a, on a, a naval uh, ship or a submarine. Using the periscope. I, well, I've never done that before. I've never, I've never done this. I've never done that. Am I qualified? Well, according to the grace given to us, we are to minister. We're to serve. And we do so cheerfully. Now, with that sort of run up to today, let's read together verses 9 through 21. And by God's grace and by his help, we will hopefully learn and gain much that will help us renew our minds being transformed verse 9 let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And the only claim we have upon it is, is that it's the gift that you've given to us. This is not the manufactured result of poets. And historians, theologians, on their own. But you, through your Holy Spirit, have has inspired. You have breathed out 
this word. So may we handle it reverently. May we submit to it completely. And by your grace, help us to understand it sufficiently. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit who has inspired and preserved this word for us today will also teach us. Help us to glorify you in our study. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Roman Empire that Paul was living in when he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy, Scripture, uh, Holy Spirit was a little bit different than the world in which we live today. And it helps us understand the context of the words that we have just read together from verses 9 through 21. If you consider the Roman Empire politically, <laughs> it is completely different from the world in which we live today. There was an emperor. There was one who was giving the rules, and if you did not worship him, there was a price to pay, physically and figuratively. If you look at economically, there was, in some places of the world, you can find similarities because there was such a, a, a great gulf fixed between those who were part of the Roman Empire, those who were Roman citizens, and those who were not Roman citizens. Now, the classification of those who were non-Roman citizens was vast because they would make up people from all over the world. For as the Roman Empire grew and they overtook individuals and made them part of their empire, instead of bringing them all into Rome as prisoners, they would throughout the Roman Empire, just simply dictate what they were to do and, and exert from them uh, taxes and, and, and duties from them. But they didn't have the rights that a Roman citizen had. They were treated differently. If you looked at Rome from a religious perspective, it was very diverse, but at the same time, as I mentioned earlier with the, with the Caesar, with the emperor of Rome, if you didn't worship him, as long as you worshipped a number of the other gods that they would have collected through their ambitious effort to rule the world and incorporate them into their own worship, you were fine. As long, again, as it led you to worship the empire. And if you were a Christian in these times, it was extremely difficult because the Christian church, as we were talking about even in the Christian growth group class this morning, was made up of a diverse crowd. You would have Roman citizens. You would have Jews. You would have people who were Gentiles living all over the place and would come into Rome or any of these larger cities in which these letters of the Apostle Paul were written, all worshiping together from different backgrounds, different cultural experiences, different educational levels, different financial positions. But for the Christian, it was different. Because the Christian, similarly to the Jew, would worship one true God. The Jews had somewhat of a relationship that we can, we can pull from the Gospels and we can pull from the New Testament writings where their relationship with the Romans wasn't too abrupt, but at the same time, they knew where their line was. They knew that they didn't want to make the Romans too upset with their sacrifices. They didn't want to make the Roman government too upset because they would just get irritated and, and uh, punish them. The Christians, on the other hand, weren't quite so careful, and the Christians, by and large, because they did not have a, a, an inside uh, 
relationship, so to speak, with the Roman government often would find themselves the first ones to be persecuted if there was any sort of problem. And as you have probably heard either from this pulpit or in the classrooms around the church or elsewhere uh, through your studies of the scripture, you probably realize that the emperor Nero was probably the harshest of any within the scriptures that we know of. That when any trouble would come, if they couldn't find out the root cause of the problems, they would just blame it on the Christians. And they would arrest them. And... So you have to understand that when Paul is writing this letter to those who are in Rome, he's writing to a group of people who live a very different life than what we know. But they were still simply those who were saved by the grace of God. So that when he gives them the first 11 chapters, which is primarily to straighten things out as to are the Jews preferred by God more than the, than the non-Jew? Is the fact that they had the law better for them than those who were not given the law? And I think that we can all safely say that, one, God has not forgotten the Jews. That's what chapter 11 is all about. However, they're not any more special than anybody else, except for the fact that they probably have more guilt on them because they were given the law. But everyone has rejected God. They have all suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have no hope. So he goes in, in chapter 12, he begins to talk about how all of these people are to serve together, how they're all to have their minds transformed, how they're all to be renewed, how they are all to forsake and not be conformed no longer to this world. He talks to them about the grace that is given to them. Let me say one, one more thing about that passage prior to verse 9 that will help us. In verse 6, again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. What helped me more than anything in understanding spiritual gifts is to understand the word in which the word spiritual gift is translated from the Greek language. Now, we all understand that the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. That was the common language of those in Paul's day, and that is the language he's using. So when we read the English translations today, we have a translation from Greek to English. Now, if you are bilingual, you may be able to read from Greek to some other, but it all originated in the Greek language. And it's interesting, I believe, for us to understand, when it comes to spiritual gifts, that the Greek word that is used that is translated spiritual gifts throughout the New Testament is charis. C-H-A-R-I-S, if we were to transliterate that from Greek alphabet to the English alphabet. And you may be, wait a minute, I've heard that word before because that's translated grace. And you would be right. So, Every time you come across the, the, the term spiritual gift in your New Testament, what should be, in my opinion, in your mind, is instead of saying spiritual gift, you should be thinking and perhaps even saying a gift of grace. Now, why is that so helpful for us today? Well, you may recall as we were singing by grace alone, your pardon is a gift of love. Your grace alone must save us. Our works will not remove our guilt. 
Now, we're all familiar with that. We believe in, in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, right? We realize that there's no works that can save us. There's nothing that we can do that will satisfy God's wrath to the point where he says, oh, well, I'm not going to judge you anymore according to your sin. I'm going to judge you because you did something so good. He never will do that. So we understand that salvation, our position, our standing before a holy, righteous God will never, ever be dependent upon what we can do or what we will do. But the, but the, but the song goes on. For, for as it says, the strictest life would fail us. You could live as strict as you want to do according to the law of God, and it will still fail you. So let none in deeds or merits boast, but let us own the Holy Ghost, for he alone can change us. Now, while we all would be in great harmony and agreement on the fact that salvation could never be by works, it would always have to be by grace, let me offer you something else that's a truthful statement in Scripture that you will never serve God sufficiently in your own strength. It will only be because God has given you the grace to do so. I hope if that has not already helped you in your Christian life, that beginning today, that will help you so much. Because if you walk out these doors and listen to me preach a message about this list of characteristics of the Christian life, and you seek to do these things on your own, you will woefully fail. You may get to a point where you think that you've arrived and then you're going to drop off the scene and you think, what in the world happened? I'm no longer a Christian. The reason why I know that's because I felt that way. You know why? Because I thought I was actually getting better and better and better. And guess what? It was all grace. So that when I fell, it was me. The grace was still there. <laughs> he continues to hold me fast. So that when we think about serving Jesus Christ, when we think about looking through the periscope, when we think about swabbing the deck, when we think about actually navigating the ship, whatever our roles are within the church and the body of Christ, it is all going to be upheld and strengthened by God's grace. When we think about spiritual gifts, it's not because I have a talent, as Tim mentioned last week. It's not because I've accumulated some skill set or because I'm following the plan. It should blow our minds every time we see anything happen for the cause of Jesus Christ for good because he's doing it through flawed people. And the only explanation for it is the same explanation that any of us will see Jesus Christ face in heaven forever, and that's his grace. So, with that in mind, Paul says, let love be genuine. In Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, which he spends a lot of time talking about gifts of grace or spiritual gifts, leading us to believe that there were, as Paul says, they weren't lacking in any gift. When it came to ministry, there was not anything the church at Corinth was not active in and, and, and something that they were not 
fulfilling through ministry. But apparently they had some things out of line. Maybe they were doing things inappropriately with their gift. Maybe they were doing things that in time, I don't know what the problem was, but there were certainly issues that Paul had to address specifically. But in his discourse that we find ending in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, what do we find in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? We all know it. 1 Corinthians is chapter of what? Go ahead and say it. This is a Baptist church. You can say it. Love. Now, why would he do that? Why would he talk to the church at Corinth who obviously had their issues with fulfilling the ministry of spiritual gifting and follow that all up with love? Well, if you read, he says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels and have not love, you know the rest. I'm nothing but a bunch of racket, clanging cymbals, bells. If I have powers and understanding of mysteries and of knowledge, and I have faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So when we look at chapter 12 of Romans, and he gives us a short but an adequate list of what spiritual gifts or gifts of grace look like, why wouldn't he say, let your love be genuine? Let it be of good quality. And as he goes on to say in verse 10, love what, I'm sorry, Verse 9, abhor what is evil. Comes from a word for hating. Hold fast to what is good. That which is useful. There's three things before we go any further. And it's introduced here in verse 9. Three things as we continue going through this list, I want you to keep in mind. Paul is all over the place. This, this is a English preacher's outline maker nightmare because just as you, you try to get this over here what what it jumps over here and then it seems to jump back over here and then just back over here so what i think would be helpful three things one is that paul when he's going through this instruction wants us to be mindful of a high standard of goodness that when we serve jesus christ we should do so with an elevated understanding of what is good. Not casual, not leisurely, not comfortable, but what is substantively good. The second thing that as we go through this that he wants us to pay attention to is our preference for our brother and sister as well as the world. For other people in general. And then the third thing I want you to be thinking about as you go through this is be thinking about his dedication and his confidence to God. Okay? So we got three things going on here that I want you to be thinking through this whole list. And some of them are going to jump out a little bit more in one area than the other. But as a whole, there's three elements. Again, what? Standard of, of, of goodness. 
a preference for others, and a confidence in God. So let's move on. So as he says in verse 9, abhor that which is evil, but hold fast to that which is good. So he goes back to, to love again in verse 10. Love one another. This is a different word than in verse 9. Verse 9, he uses the term agape. We know that's the unconditional love of God. Paul uses agape many times in the New Testament for, for love towards others, that we should love one another unconditionally. We should, we should love each other. But in Romans, most of the time when he uses agape, he's talking about the unconditional love that God has for us. Which when you understand the theological significance of Romans, you understand why he would do so. But here he's using a different word. The agape is let your love be genuine in verse 9. In verse 10 he says, let your brotherly love continue. That affection that you have for your brother, your familial love, that love that you have, well, have to be kind of careful with this because sometimes in our families we don't have the kind of love that we ought to have. But what we would desire to have, you know, you, if you have family reunions every year, like I've got two, two of the four sides of my family had reunions every year. The other side never had family reunions. Most of the reason why is because they were spread out. But oftentimes you would see the same folks every year the same 20 people would show up and say, I remember you from last year. Why, why, I see you every day of the week. Why am I here at the reunion? But there's some families. That's the way my family Now, for Amy's family, the Thompsons, which is her, her dad's side of the family, they live all over the place. Some of them live, they got little pockets where they would live in. But they might have a reunion every 15 years, every 20 years. Now, again, some of them see each other on a daily basis, but most of them, they don't. They live anywhere from Alabama all the way up to New Jersey. And then all across, you know, in some places around the world. And when they get together, it's not to, hey, what did you do last week? It was, hey, what have you been doing for the last 15 years? Or, you know, now that we've got social media and we got email and all that kind of stuff, you can kind of keep a little bit better. It's not quite so archaic as that. But when they get together, it's different. It's different, you know, my family, when we come home from church, everybody would get together and mama would cook lunch. You know, in some other families, and that might be something you could relate to, but for those who don't do that, every time when you do get together for the holidays, it's special. That's the kind of love that Paul's speaking about here. That you have that kind of affection. Love one another. In the body of Christ, there should be a love for one another because we are in the same family. We have the same father. We have the same brother in Jesus Christ who has redeemed us with his blood. We've all been adopted into his family. We're all made joint heirs with Christ. And there should be a love that bonds us together. He goes on to say, outdo one another in showing honor. Competition. Again, we have to be careful. If we just looked at this logistically as static instructions about how we are to, to do things to please God, then guess what? We could make a complete mess out of this. And, and what do we have sometimes? We have complete messes around in churches because they're, they're trying to outdo one another. No, I, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. Let me wash your car. Let me clean your house. Let me do and, and, and Well, I don't know if that ever happened in church, but you can sort of maybe dream about a, a world in which that happened. But we should be wanting to 
show honor to one another more than you show me. Not because I'm better than you, but because I, I just want to, I want to lift you up. Again, where does this fall? This falls in all those three of those categories, because not only are you showing that you want to honor to a great degree, but you're also preferring others so you can glorify God. An example of that would be uh, this past week, I was reminded of an example of a, of a gentleman who we have in our country, we have the Medal of Honor. It's given by our government to people who have demonstrated certain acts of honor. Supposedly a very high standard for that. Not just everybody gets a Medal of Honor. Of course, we live in a day where you know everybody gets a trophy, so we try to figure out everybody, how can we give everybody a Medal of Honor? But there was a day, and particularly back in the day of World War II, there was a situation where there was a, a young man from Alabama who was flying in a B-29. And what they would do in B-29 bombers is they would go in front of the big 52s and they would throw out these phosphorus bombs so that, that would light up and the bombers behind them would have something to aim for. And this particular gentleman named Henry Irwin was responsible for dropping these phosphorus bombs. And unfortunately, the parachute on one of these bombs caught the wind wrong and it went right back up into the airplane, into the plane. And phosphorus is probably not the substance that you want around you breathing. And he realized that his crew was in trouble. And so he, in all of this, couldn't see it. So he was simply reaching around the plane, bottom of the plane, the floor of the plane, to try to get, and he found it. And he picked it up in his arms, all the while it burning his flesh, melting his face off. And he told the pilot to open up the door so that he could throw it. He said, he, I, I've got it, so open the door so I can throw it out. And they did. And he saved the life of those who were on that plane with him. His body was so damaged that once they finally made arrangements to get him to a hospital, he was amazingly still alive. They didn't have a Medal of Honor laying around. The closest one was in a museum in Guam. They broke in and got it. They said, we have, before this man dies, we have got to honor him. Long story short, you can, you can look this up. It's an amazing story. The Henry Irwin received his Medal of Honor because he had an affection that preferred himself over others. And probably the most amazing part of the story is he just died about 10 years ago. His life but at the same time, his life was incredibly changed. Now, that's a severe story about honor. I don't know if I can outdo that. When we think about each other within the body of Christ, 
Is that the honor we're thinking about? Or is that standard too high? Well, well, no, I don't want to love my, my brother or my sister in Christ that much. I mean, that's, that would cost me my life potentially. But that's what we should be striving for. We should be striving, how can I outdo you in honor? That's what Paul is saying. Now, if you think it's going to get easier, forget it. Because the next thing that he says, after he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, be not slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now, I believe the translators, when they were making their verse divisions, had a really good idea of keeping these three thoughts together. Be not slothful in zeal. In other words, zeal, we often call this passion. Uh, a jealousy almost. When we think about God's jealousy for his people, God doesn't sin when he's jealous because they belong to him. So there is no sin when we, when we say God is jealous. But he's jealous in a zealous way. He has a passion and a commitment to it. And Paul is saying that we should not be slothful in our passion for Christ, for ministry, for what we've been called to do. As a matter of fact, we should be fervent. This is a word that's talk, talking about when you put water on the, on the stove. And it gets so hot that it starts to boil. Now, you know it's boiling, not because it just stays still. And, well, it looks, looks okay. If I touch it, it would be hot. But no, you see it because there's bubbles coming to the top. The, the water starts to move. So that we should not be slothful in our zeal, but rather we should be fervent in spirit. And it results in serving the Lord. Now, one other thing about the Roman Empire is that they were living in a day in which if, you know what, if you owed me money, and I gave you until June 30th to pay me back my money, and you didn't pay me back my money, guess what? You became my slave. I would take, it wasn't an earring, but I would take a piece of metal and I would drive it through your lobe of the ear because you belong to me. And when you paid me back, I would take it out because you belong to me. you didn't have enough strength to, to, to muster up the value of what you owed me, then guess what? I'm looking for your children or your wife or your grandchildren who have more energy than you have. You know, we always thought, boy, I wish I had energy of that little five-year-old over there. Well, guess what? If the Roman person who was owed money and they get good pay, that's exactly what they did. Well, that's kind of harsh. Well, that's the same word that Paul uses of how we should serve the Lord. And he gives us the idea of how to do it. He, don't, don't do it slothfully. Don't, don't, don't be slothful in your zeal because you belong to Jesus Christ because, oh no, I'm so obligated to do all these laws and commandments. Oh no, I've got to live a life of holiness. Oh no, I've got to give up all the fun of the world. No, don't be slothful. You need to be fervent. I get to serve the Lord who saved me from my sins. He actually is a good master. He's the one who is giving me life. 
But you can understand how the Roman reader would understand that. You, you mean I'm, I'm a slave to Jesus? Absolutely. Paul says, I am. And practically every letter he wrote, he said, Paul, an apostle and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give you an idea if we are slothful. Think about the church of Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3. Don't know how much you remember from those seven churches, but Laodicea was not one of the good ones. And the reason why is because they had become lukewarm. And Jesus Christ said, because you are neither cold nor hot and you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. But he gives them a word of instruction. You who are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from the gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may, be, you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. That's a message to the church today that's gotten lazy. Is not zealous in their service for Christ. Wake up. Buy for yourself that which you need. Clean yourself up. Repent. Be zealous that you may avoid the wrath that comes. Paul does get a little lighter in verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Again, thinking about the society in which the Christian would be living in the Roman Empire, there wasn't much else to rejoice in but hope. But oh, what a hope. I'm thankful that there's some really gifted songwriters, and even today, or this past week, I came across a new song, Matt Boswell and Matt Papa, working along with the Gettys, have uh, almost home. That's that, that should be up here, folks. It is so easy for us to get distracted by the political circus around which we live. It is so easy to be depressed by the lack of anything good or love or anything else in this world. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the world in which we live. It's a fallen world. We're short-sighted people. We're so much prone to look behind us and see what we've missed out on or what we don't have anymore instead of looking to what? We're almost home. Do you have a home to look forward to? Is it yours? Is it, do you have hope? Do you have the hope knowing that you have been justified by faith? Do you know no longer no more condemnation because you're in Christ? Do you have a hope of knowing that you're like Abraham looking for a far better country? Or do you have a hope that you can rejoice in because whether you live in the first century Roman Empire or the 21st century America, you need a hope that goes beyond this world. 
And the only way that you can obtain it is through the person of Jesus Christ, understanding in humility your wretchedness, your sinfulness, and understanding that Jesus Christ gave his life as a perfect, satisfactory substitute on the cross, exchanging his righteousness for our rags of sin so that we might be clothed and dressed in the white, pure robes of righteousness of Christ. That's hope. If I don't have that, then it doesn't matter how well my wife treats me, and she treats me really fine. It doesn't matter how wonderful my home is, even though I've got a really nice place to live. It really doesn't matter how much I get paid at my job. And God has provided for me to where I'm without need. But that's not where my hope's at. My hope is that even before I finish preaching, which I, I acknowledge the fact that I give Jesus plenty of time, but if before I finish preaching, that the eastern sky will break with the glorious light of his return, his angels, and I will be called up together to be with the Lord forever. That's my hope. My hope. And I should rejoice in hope as I'm serving. And again, this is in the context of serving within the church. My hope is not that somebody's going to pat me on the back and say, hey, great job, Mark. You actually did something to help clean the church up. Or thanks, Mark, for, for whatever you did. No, my hope is not in that. Even though you should be out doing me in honor, so you should be doing that for me. I think that would be taken out of context. However, my rejoice in hope. Uh-oh. I'm glad he said rejoice in hope because he says next, patient tribulation. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't say patient tribulation first because I might forget my hope if I'm worrying about my tribulation. I'm going through. But if I have hope, then guess what? As he tells me in chapter 5, that's what patient produces endurance. And endurance produces hope. There's the Gettys. My hope in life and death. There you go. I've never preached to a soundtrack before, but that, that's great. It's a great song. Right on time. Hopefully that wasn't the, my five-minute warning that's almost up. So, uh, but how do we get there? That last phrase, constant in prayer. You remember the man who came down or came upon Jesus when, when Jesus and Peter and James came down from the mountain? in which they saw the transfigured Christ. A man came with a son who, who needed help. He said, your disciples are worthless. They can't do anything. I brought them hoping that they could heal my son, remove this demon from him. And Jesus said, well, <laughs> before he lectured his disciples about what they should have done, he said, well, you know, there's only certain things that can only be done through prayer and fasting. You know, sometimes we might think that we can wade through the high waters, trusting God, knowing that, hey, I know everything's going to work out together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we can just kind of wade along with the water up to our necks. But, you know, there comes a time where we that's not enough. We need to be praying constantly. Praying for help, realizing that I cannot do this on my own, knowing that the grace that God gave me yesterday is not sufficient for the day. I need new mercies today. And in order for me to rejoice and hope and be uh, to be patient in tribulations, I need to make sure I'm constant in prayer. 
Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Now, unfortunately, that's just the first point. No, I'm just kidding. We're almost through. But hopefully, as we looked at these areas so far, again, a high standard of, of honor and what's good, a preference for others, and a confidence in God. Those things are flowing, hopefully, in your mind with these things. Verse, thir or verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, this flows right from the thought of showing honor, competing with one of them. Show, show more honor than the next person. You find somebody, look for people needy. You know what, we, we've run out of needy people. I need to go find some. That is part of ministry. That we see people in need. And we need to pray that God will give us a sermon to see the people in need from the people who are just slothful. This is not just so overwhelming anybody who's got their hand out because there are some people out there hand out as a profession. May God give us a sermon not to be so cold-hearted to the person where I think, you know what, that's just somebody who's lazy and they don't want to work from somebody who's truly needy. Because if we walk by the person who's needy and we, and we fail to show compassion towards them, shame on us. If that means you want to overdo it and say, you know what, I would rather err on the side of, of being too generous, okay, that's fine. But may we be careful to understand that the Word of God is calling us to care for those who are needy, particularly within the body, the household of God. We should bless those who persecute. Oh, man. We think we have it. Again, go back to first century Rome. Yeah, you should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's just skip over that part, right? Let's just go to, to where we can we can be, you know, helpful for those people. No, let's not. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What type of persecution are you facing today? From whom does it come from? It's really easy. And it's also natural for us to curse. Not to bless. But the word's pretty, pretty simple. I, I wish I could find some other meaning from the Greek that, to say that this is what this means, and it doesn't. It says exactly what it's translated. We'll get to that here in just a second, a little bit more deeply. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Isn't that one of the wonderful things that we as believers in Jesus Christ can do with one another? On both sides of the coin. When something good happens to a brother or sister in Christ, we can rejoice with them knowing that, that the perspective's right, believing that we're not making any more of this blessing of life than what it truly is, but knowing that it comes from God and we can all thank God together. We can rejoice and be happy about it. But at the same time, understanding that God brings in sorrow into our life and he has given us a brother for adversity. As the proverb says. That we have those who 
have gone through, as Paul says, that you know, God has given me these things to go through so that I can provide you comfort in God. To be able to rejoice and to be able to mourn and cry with the same people that we love and are in the same family with is a great blessing in life. But that's our ministry. Live in harmony with one another. Now, again, remembering that this church that Paul is writing to primarily is made up of Jews and non-Jews. Those who think they have the upper hand because they had the law and those who are wondering, am I second rate? And Paul says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Never think that you've got all the answers. Never think that you've got it all figured out. Now, let's face it. There's things that we've learned. There's things that we know. There's things that are consistent with the scriptures that we know that we're right. That's not what Paul's talking about. But what the church doesn't need is a bunch of people who are pointing one finger at everybody else saying, this is what you need to be doing and this is what you should be doing and this is what you should, and all that kind of stuff when not understanding that they've got three fingers pointing right back at them. Because even if we have everything right, if we have all the right answers, which sometimes I think that I'm really, really close. If I do, it is only by the grace of God. What I know is only a gift from God. So let's not live haughty with other, but live in harmony with other people because that might actually be an opportunity to help somebody learn what the right answer is. That might actually help correct someone's behavior. If we don't do it in a haughty fashion, but do it in a way where we're living in harmony. Reply, I'm sorry, repay, no one evil for evil. But give thought. And this word for thought suggests that it is advanced planning. It's not just something you do off the top of your head. But when somebody's done evil for you, you should already have it in your mind, how am I going to respond? What am, how am I going to do that which is honorable? so that everybody understands that it's honorable? That's tough. Because if we get the right answer, it is impossible to do in the flesh. But, if possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So when you have a neighbor who lives within 500 feet of your house and he wants to go out in his backyard and shoot off his gun, which he has a, you know, I'm not against guns. Don't, this is not a Second Amendment sermon or anything. It's annoying. Or when you have the person who's driving in your lane, you know, when you have three lanes and the, and the one on the left's yours and they get in it, want to go about 10 miles slower than what God intended for them to go. And the reason why I figured that out is because I'm the one that God sets the standard by. You know, I'm the pace car. 
Or if it's something even more serious. And you've got people who intentionally want to aggravate you. As much as it is possible, there's a qualification here. There's a qualification. As much as it is possible, live peaceably. I'll let you and the Holy Spirit figure that out. Just understand that he has told you through his word as much as is possible to live peaceably. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Contrary to that, you should, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because Paul is leaning on the truth and the wisdom of the proverb that says you will be heaping ashes on top of their head when you do so. So do not overcome evil with evil. Don't, don't play the Barney Fife. You fight fire with fire. But you overcome evil with good. And you're going to be able to do that when you have elevated honor and goodness. And you prefer others over yourself. And you have confidence in God will take care of. What would you do if I was to tell you the rest of that story as an individual, Henry Irwin? If I was to say, right before they took off, there was a big argument. And Henry Irwin called one of the pilots a name that I can't repeat from the pulpit. And they started talking about each other's mother and threatening one another. As soon as they get off this plane, this is what I want to do to you because I remember what you did to me last week. Would that change the story at all? I hope that you would say it would because you know that the outcome of that, when it really came down to it, he put his life on the line to save not only the others in his plane, but to fulfill the mission that they were called to do. Now, I just made all of that up. I don't know what they were doing before they got in the airplane. But you know what I do know? It is fallen sinners saved by the grace of God. That would be very reasonable and probable. But what I also know is that by the grace of God, he could turn even that situation around to the point but because we honor we prefer and we have confidence according to the scriptures. That does something that we can't explain any other way except by the grace of God. That's how we serve and minister to one another. It's not because we're perfect. It's not because we're always treating each other the way we ought to be treating one another. It's not because we're always doing the things we ought to be doing. But when it comes down to ministry, when it comes down to preaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to reaching this lost world for Jesus Christ, we, at that moment, we lay our lives down. We forget the differences we have. We forget that which is not necessary. And upon the truth of the gospel, 
we serve. Because God gives us grace. Help us. Father, what we have looked at in these verses of Romans chapter 12 are impossible in our lives. Much less to be consistent and constant. We are desperately in need of your grace. Lord, we know what our lives are like apart from your grace. And we know when we take the reins of our life, we know what will happen. But we pray, Lord, that in our imperfection, though we stand in the righteousness of Christ before you, we know we continue to fail. May in that unrighteous living, may you in your grace cleanse us, prepare us for ministry, and use us to accomplish what you've given us to do in a way that the world will stand in awe. Not because we're such good people and they would only expect nothing less of us. Not because we've given them a consistent witness of how good you are, but how incredible the work that you do through fallen people by your grace, for your glory. Help us, Father, to serve you honorably, Help us, Lord, to have a standard of goodness, to not settle, to not be lazy and slothful, but help us to serve. Help us to be a slave to Christ in love and in passion for what he's called us to do. And I pray that we would do all in the confidence of knowing that you will remedy it all. If somebody's taken advantage of us, you'll take care of it. If we've missed out on the pleasures that we think in life, you're going to more than make up for that in the life to come. And that even in the hope that we have, may we rejoice and rejoice and rejoice until we see Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Pastor.